The boxer Mike Tyson once made the observation that everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. And there's something about that that just rings true. Um, I was thinking about that before the service and I thought, I've never been punched in the face, but then I remembered I grew up with two brothers. And I know this to be true because there would be moments where my brothers and I were playing, you know, doing whatever little boys do, having fun. And inevitably it would get more and more physical and there would inevitably be this moment where one of us would get punched and then suddenly it would change, right? And then we'd, we'd fight it out and then in 10 minutes it'd be over. But everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face and then everything changes. And, and sort of the, the metaphor that he's getting at is you have in your I- mind an idea of how you want things to go. Maybe you have a life plan, you've got a five-year uh, sort of goal mapped out. And then something happens. It's your metaphorical punch to the face. It's an obstacle. It's a challenge. It's something that happens in your life that sort of sets you back on your heels. Have you ever experienced that? And what I want to push into today is uh, this question of how do, we, how do we navigate those obstacles? In this series, we've been talking about courageous faith, and we defined it as uh, courageous faith is living in obedience to God's calling on your life. Now, the challenge to living in obedience to God's calling on your life is that we we have in mind this plan, and then comes the metaphorical punch to the face. It's the obstacle. It's the challenge. It's this question then of how do we navigate that? In 1985, two uh, young climbers in their early to mid-20s, Joe Simpson and Simon Yates, were attempting the first ever uh, summit of Ciula Grande in the Peruvian Andes. They had a particular route never been climbed before. They wanted to be the first to climb this route. It was an arduous climb, which uh, entailed uh, setting up a base camp for several days, uh, acclimatizing to the altitude before they made their summit ascent. They did all that. The day came for the summit ascent, and they, they tagged the peak. They made it. They celebrated it up there, and they began their descent down the mountain. Up to this point, everything had gone perfectly according to plan. Now, on a climb like this, you have to have a meticulous plan. They had to know uh, how much food they had left, how much fuel they had left. Everything had to be planned down to the last detail. They're starting their descent down the mountain, and everything is going perfect until this one moment where Joe uh, had to place his weight on the ice axe, take his weight off the rope so his partner Simon could descend. Now, as Simon is descending, they're slack on the rope. This is an incredibly dangerous moment for climbers. And Joe said to himself, he goes, whatever you do, don't fall now. And almost uh, ironically, at that moment, the ice beneath him gave way, and Joe started careening down the side of the mountain. Now, what happened was he was wearing crampons that are like intense uh, spikes on the end of his boot. His crampons dug into the snow, twisted his leg, and fractured both his tibia and fibia, tearing all of the ligaments in his knee, basically incapacitating him. So Simon, his partner, descends to him, and he says, hey, are, are you okay? knowing that both of their lives might very well hang in the balance of this answer. And Joe says, absolutely not. I've shattered my leg. That was their metaphorical punch in the face moment. Now their plan went out the window. Suddenly they had to change course and they would, uh, for the next two hours, begin this arduous process of Simon climbing down to where Joe was at, giving him some slack and then letting Joe down the mountain. This was going okay until uh, as night descended, uh, visibility got lower and lower, and so it was hard to see even a few yards in front of them. And suddenly, as uh, Simon is lowering Joe, he inadvertently lowers him over a cliff. Now, what happens at this point is gravity takes over, and Joe's weight is pulling down on the rope, and it took the knot in the rope and pulled it through their belay device. 
And Joe is now hanging out over this cliff and Simon is powerless to hoist him back up. They said they waited there for two hours, what felt like an eternity. And finally, Simon realized he had no choice. Either he stayed there and they both died or he could cut the rope. And so Simon took his knife out of the backpack and he cut the rope, making the horrific decision to let Joe fall. You can imagine how crestfallen Simon was at that point. He began the quiet and um, terrifying descent back to their base camp. Simon arrives at base camp. He's dehydrated. He's malnourished. He can't continue climbing for several days because he's so exhausted for the summon attempt they just made. And so he lays in camp several days, hydrating, eating again, just working up the strength to begin his descent off of the mountain. Day four, he's preparing, he's packing up his pack. He's getting things ready. He's burning Joe's clothes because he he doesn't have the ability to pack them out. So all of his equipment that's left, he's burning it, uh, thinking his climbing partner is dead. And as he's about to depart base camp, he hears in the distance a noise that stops him in his tracks. And he listens. And it almost sounds like a human voice calling out to him. He goes, there's no way. But he continues to hear this sound. And so Simon follows this sound out of base camp. And lo and behold, Joe Simpson, his climbing partner, four days later with a broken leg, winds up back at their base camp. Over the next series of of days and months, the story would come out. And what happened is that when Simon cut the rope, Joe Simpson fell 150 feet, landing on a narrow snow bridge. If he had fallen a foot to the right or to the left, he would have plummeted to his death. He survived that 150-foot fall with a broken leg. He was in a, a small crevasse in the glacier. He couldn't climb up, so he had no choice but to continue to climb down inside the glacier. And over the next few hours, he climbed down until he popped out into daylight. From that point, Joe had to crawl eight miles to make it back to their base camp with a broken leg, severely dehydrated, severely malnourished. When rescuers later talked about what helped you keep going, how did you survive this moment? Joe said, I had to remind myself of the purpose. It's either I do this or I die. It's either I push forward or my life is over. And he said, I couldn't bear the thought of this being how my life ends. And so he, he created a rhythm. It was one foot and one arm in front of the other. Crawl until he couldn't endure the pain. Rest for a moment and then continue that process. And he said, I just had to persevere and had to keep going. And it's amazing to me that he endured the excruciating pain, crawled eight miles over four days to, to save his own life. Now, talk about a punch in the face moment, right? Everything had gone out the window. It was an utterly uh, impossible survival scenario. And yet Joe Simpson found a way through. And, and I look at a story like that. And I look at this opportunity that someone had to overcome a substantial obstacle. And I go, how do they find that sort of courage? How do they find that sort of grit and resilience to push through a moment like that? To navigate a seemingly insurmountable obstacle and come out to a place of getting a second chance at life. And that's what I want to push into today. How do you and I find the perseverance, the grit, the resilience to push through and to navigate obstacles? So here's the key question. How can we move forward in courageous faith when we encounter obstacles and challenges? So here's a couple things. We've talked about courageous faith is walking in obedience to God's call. I think, church, there's a couple misconceptions we have about God's call. I think the misconceptions we have about God's call are, are number one, we assume that what God calls us to will be easy and free of challenge. We 
we have this idea that if God is calling us to something, then it must be an easy path to walk. It must be something that's, that, that's not going to challenge us too much. Now, here's the thing. I think for most of us, we know theologically and biblically that's wrong. But I think this misconception still lives on because what happens is when we encounter a difficult moment, if you're like me, the first thing we start doing is saying, God, why did you allow this? God, why this obstacle in my life? God, what are you doing? And we sort of get angry with God and we question God. And so I think deep down, we know this isn't true. And yet that misconception exists that if God is calling me to something, why this obstacle? Why this challenge? Why do I keep hitting a wall? Why do I have this getting punched in the face moment that sets me back on my heels? And, and, and there's the tension, right? When you face the challenge, when what you thought would be an easy path of obedience becomes difficult, how do we push through? Here's the second misconception that we have. Is that God won't give us more than we can handle. Right? That, that's, that's sort of a, a nice cultural phrase that we wish were true, that, that God won't give us more than we can handle. The problem is, I don't think any of that's biblical. In fact, what I think you see in scripture is that God often calls us beyond our competence and beyond our capacity to a a place of trusting his capability. And what we want is God to call us to a place of safety and comfort and convenience. The only problem is that safety and comfort and convenience doesn't allow us to enter a season of growth and challenge and formation. And so in the back of our minds, we have this idea that God won't give us more than we can challenge. And yet when we've walked obediently and faithfully with Jesus, if your journey is anything like mine, I continually come into these places where I go, God, what you're calling me to seems impossible for me. I don't have the competence. I don't have the capacity. And God goes, you're right, but I do. And, and I realized, church, what I really want is I... Deep down, there's part of me that goes, I just want to live in a place where I don't really need faith. I want to be in control. I I want to have uh, uh, everything feel safe and comfortable and convenient. And yet God is consistently calling me to places that are beyond my ability where I have to trust his capacity. And that requires faith. And so I think we sometimes operate in these misperceptions, these misconceptions about how God operates, that it should be easy and free of challenge, that God won't give us more than we can handle, and yet all of our experiences are otherwise. We encounter obstacle, we encounter challenge, we encounter difficult moments, we encounter a getting punched in the face moment that sets us back on our heels. So how do we navigate it? How do we push into obstacles? How do we push into seasons of challenge and do so with perseverance and do so with an openness to God's plan and God's purpose and God's provision? And that's what I want to push into today. And as we do this, we're going to look at the story again of the people of Israel. Two weeks ago, we talked about the Exodus story and how Moses had been called and raised up to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt to lead them towards the promised land. Today, we're going to pick up in this story in Numbers chapter 13, where the people of Israel, the entire nation, has been freed from slavery and captivity in Egypt, and they're walking towards freedom. Now, if you've read the story, you know that already, by the time we get to Numbers 13, they've encountered challenges of how do we find food in the desert? How do we find water in the desert? In Numbers chapter 13, they hit another obstacle, another challenge, and their faithfulness to God's call of obedience. And what I want to do this morning is look at how do Moses and the people of Israel, how do they navigate these obstacles and challenges in both good and both bad ways? And what can we learn from this? Numbers chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. 
From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the, into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in the land or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rahab toward Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahaman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zon in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who'd gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they'd explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. So here, here's the nation of Israel. They've spent generations in captivity in Egypt. God finally is leading them to a place of freedom. And God tells the nation of Israel, listen, I have a land for you. It is a good and abundant land. I'm going to give it to you. This is the promise that God has made to the people of Israel. Now in Numbers chapter 13, the nation of Israel is right on the threshold of seeing God's promise to them fulfilled. They're right at the doorway to the promised land. And, and you can imagine that they're road weary. Right? They've been wandering through the desert, surviving on manna and quail that God has provided. But you can imagine that they're tired of being homeless and they are on the threshold of the promised land. At this moment, God commands Moses. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to raise up uh, one man from each of the tribes and send 12 spies into the promised land to see what it's going to look like. And so Moses does this. And, and you'll notice, by the way, in, in verse three, that Moses chooses leaders from each of the tribes. This will become important later. These aren't just Joe Schmoes. These are people of influence. These are men who have significant impact on the tribes that they lead. And Moses sends these 12 men into the promised land. And, and notice, by the way, in verse 17, that he gave them a, a detailed plan. He said, here's how I want you to approach. You should be looking at, is the land plentiful? Uh, what are the people like? What is, what is the soil like? Are there trees there? And he gives them this strategy and he says, I want you to report back to me. Now, you'll also notice that in verse two, God has said to the people of Israel, I am giving you this land. The, the reason we call it the promised land is because God literally made a promise to Israel that this land will be yours. So the spies go. And they explore the land and they discover that indeed the land is, is, is bountiful and plentiful, maybe even beyond what they imagined. 
We're told that they, they cut off one cluster of grapes that was so large, it took two men with a pole between them, it took two people to carry the single cluster of grapes. And when you've been wandering through the wilderness, that kind of bounty and plenty, that would be enticing. The only problem is I think the people of Israel assumed that when God promised the land, he meant that it would be theirs without any obstacle or challenge. So these spies are are observing the promised land and they begin to notice a few things. Number one, the cities are really large and they're fortified. The people who live there are, are, are huge and they're warriors and they're people who know how to defend their land. And there's a lot of them. And so now these spies who were supposed to go and explore this land that had been promised them and bring back a report, they are utterly defeated. So when they come back to Moses, they tell him, man, Moses, sure, the land is bountiful, but the people who live there, they're huge. There's there's no way that we can do this. It's not possible. But what they're forgetting is that God had already made them the promise, this land is yours. All they need to do is to step into the fulfillment of God's promise. But because they see the obstacle and the challenge, right, this was Israel's punch in the face moment. All they see are the fortified cities. All they see are the armies before them. And they're going, we can't do this. They're forgetting the reality that God has already promised it. God has already made a way. All they need to do is step faithfully and obediently into the call of God for them as a nation but they're forgetting that in the face of these obstacles. And I think, in fact, the obstacles that they encounter are similar to the obstacles that you and I might encounter. So let's walk through these. What are some of the obstacles that they encounter? Number one, they encounter the obstacle of people. Now, this this happens on two fronts. Number one, they encounter, of course, the people who inhabit the land that have large, walled, fortified cities. But I want you to think about this from Moses' perspective. Moses is leading this entire nation of people, and he's told them, we are going to move into this land and to take possession of it. But did you notice what happened in in chapter 13, verse 32 and 31? The men, the 10 men who, or 12 men who'd gone up to explore the land, minus Joshua and Caleb, they're not part of this conversation. They say, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. Catch this, 32. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report. Now, these men who are spreading a bad report among the Israelites, you'll remember in verse two that they are leaders of their tribes. So now you have these men of influence, these men who are leaders, these men who have a significant opportunity to sway the people of Israel. They are now spreading a bad report among all of the tribes. In fact, this gets so bad, we're not going to get there today. But in chapter 14, uh, verse 10, it says the whole Israelite assembly talked about stoning Joshua, Caleb, Moses, and Aaron. And so Moses is being faithful. He's doing what God called him to do. God told him to send the spies. Moses did that. He responded with faithfulness and obedience, and he runs headlong into difficult people. And and I don't know if, if you've had this experience, but I think if you're living in the same world and culture I am, you don't have to walk very far before you encounter difficult people. And, and all of us probably are also difficult people at sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves. And so we have in, in this mindset that, God, I'm being faithful. I'm, I'm doing what you've called me to do. And then maybe you run into a difficult person at work. You're, you're thinking, I'm trying to be a healthy influence here. And yet I have this coworker or this manager or this boss or this client, this person that they are just difficult. And you're thinking, God, I'm trying to be faithful, but I have this conflict with this person that I don't know how to navigate. Can I, can I just not? Moses encounters that cha- same challenge as these 10 spies try to undercut his leadership and derail this whole purpose and promise that God has for them. 
Secondly, I think one of the obstacles that they encounter is provision and purpose. And it's this question of, can I actually do what God is calling me to do? And when I say provision and purpose, there's two things here. The Israelites are questioning, is God capable of providing in a way that's beyond our ability? So I I, want to paint this picture for you. The, The nation of Israel has been wandering in the desert for a season. It's young and old. It's men and women. It's all their livestock. They don't have a well-trained army. They don't have great organization. They're literally just trying to survive. And they come to the door of the promised land and they discover that the promised land has large fortified cities. They have well-trained armies and the spies are looking at their nation going, you mean this ragtag group of people, of men and women and livestock, you want us to attack those fortified cities filled with people who seem like giants? Seems like a great plan. And it's the obstacle of provision and purpose. Is God really in this? It's a question of God, are you capable of leading this ragtag group of people to, to victory against odds that are incredibly stacked against us? And maybe you've experienced a similar place in your life where God has called you to something and you can list a thousand reasons why it can't work, why you're not capable, and yet you have this burning inner conviction that God has called you to this and you're going, God, I'm not sure if you can provide. I'm not sure if you can see your purpose through to fruition. And then we're filled with doubt. So we struggle to lead with difficult people. We struggle with the question of, is God's provision and purpose sufficient? And then there's the struggle of place. It's the unique dynamic that we're called to. It's the unique challenges of maybe the specific season that God has you. For the nation of Israel, it's this unique place of of coming up in battle against these large fortified cities and these well-trained armies after they've been wandering in the desert. This is a difficult place and context, a hard season to navigate. Maybe for you, it's the unique challenges of a dysfunctional family. Maybe for you, it's the unique challenges of a difficult season at work. But whatever it is, it's a hard place that feels like a punch in the face moment that has you back on your heels. The challenge in those moments is that the temptation is to give into fear and abandon God's call. And, and this is what the nation of Israel wrestles with. In chapter 14, verse 3, Let me just read this for you. The people of Israel say this. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back. And church, think about this. They're not choosing to go back to a Holiday Inn Express, right? This is, Egypt is not a good place. And yet they're they're desperate enough and they go, this challenge is so large. We don't want to step into that with obedient faithfulness. We would rather go back to oppression and slavery. And they're believing this lie that God's way is more difficult than oppression and slavery and bondage. And church, I think for some of us, we choose a similar path. God calls us to freedom. He calls us to redemption in his son, Jesus Christ. But for some of us, because brokenness and addiction and bondage is what we know, we say, this path is too difficult. Let me just be complacent and my oppression and sin and bondage. That is not a good place to be. And yet when we face the challenge, we go, God, why is this so hard? Why is this so difficult? If you're in it, why the obstacle? Why the challenge? Maybe we'll just return to what we know. That is a temptation to abandon God's call out of fear that is not healthy or good or redemptive. So what do we do, right? 
So here's the next thing. I think we need to recognize that fear distorts our perspective. The nation of Israel is afraid. Did you, did you notice in what I just read in chapter 14, verse three, what did they say? They, they said, we've come out here and now we're going to be defeated and our wives and children are going to be carried off as plunder. They're terrified that they're going to be defeated in battle and that their families will be split up and fear is determining their perspective and fear is determining their course of action. But church, fear is a liar. And I think one of the biggest plans of the enemy is to get us operating out of a place of fear so that our perspective becomes so distorted that we stop seeing God's truth and we make bad decisions based on convenience and comfort and safety. So here, here's how fear distorts uh, their perspective. Let, let me again read for you uh, Numbers 13, 31. I think this will be on the screen. Yes, right there. It says, but the men who had gone up with him, this is with Caleb, said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they'd explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim who are descendants of Anak. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. That's pretty bleak. Now listen to Joshua and Caleb in, in chapter 14, verse five. Joshua and Caleb are the only two spies who were in disagreement with the other 10. You maybe caught uh, Caleb's little speech in verse 30. It says, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. Caleb's ready to roll. He's like, let's go. Joshua's right there with him. This is their speech in 14, verse five. It says, then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. And they said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Now, I've got a, a, a nice little chart for you to compare and contrast this because it's important for us to see the two very different perspectives that are operating here. If we can throw that chart up. So in, in, in verse 31 of chapter 13, uh, the people of Israel, the, the 10 spies say, we can't attack those people. But Joshua and Caleb in their speech said, the Lord will give us this land. And the reason they're saying that is because God in, in chapter 13, verse one and two made that promise. I will give you this land. Joshua and Caleb are operating out of the sufficiency of God's promise. The people, uh, the 10 spies are operating out of a place of fear. It's distorted their perspective. They're saying, there's no way this isn't possible. Joshua and Caleb are like, why not? God's already promised it. Go to, go to the next line. They say they're stronger than we are. And we seemed like grasshoppers to them. Now, here's what I think is funny. That phrase, we seemed like grasshoppers to them. Y'all, how do they know? Did, 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 did they go up and say, uh, excuse me, um, we're, we're doing a, a survey. Would you say that we look like grasshoppers to you? <laughs> Would you say that our army looks like kind of intimidating, a little intimidating, not very intimidating or like grasshoppers? They don't know that, right? They're making assumptions based on fear, right? There's no truth to that statement. They're stronger than we are. We seem like grasshoppers. Now notice Joshua and Caleb, they go, don't be afraid of them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us, right? And again, they're focused on God's promise. They're focused on God's presence. They're like, why wouldn't we do this? God has already promised. The problem is these 10 other leaders are operating out of a place of fear that has distorted their perspective and causing them to live and to walk in untruth. Now, third, look at this one. 
They go, oh, the land devours those living in it. I, I don't even know what that means, right? But, but notice what Joshua and Caleb, they say, no, 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 the land is exceedingly good and we will devour them. Y'all find Joshua's and Caleb's. I love that, right? They say, no, 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 we're gonna devour us. No, 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 we're gonna devour them. They don't even stand a chance because God is with us. Now, notice that Joshua and Caleb, they they don't make light of of the challenge. It's still there. They just trust God's promise, God's purpose, God's provision, and God's protection and are walking in the truth of what God has already given them. So here's how fear distorts our perspective. I'm going to hit these quick. Uh, Fear causes us to fixate on the burden and miss the blessing. Fear causes us to see all the challenges and miss all the ways that we've seen God's provision. If you go back and read the Exodus story, God provided water for them in the desert. He provided manna for them to eat. He provided quail for them to eat. And now all of a sudden they're like, well, God led us this far, but I think he's going to abandon us here. No, all they're seeing is the burden and they're missing the blessing because fear has distorted their perspective. And, And likewise, I think fear makes challenges seem bigger than they really are. Are are the people living in the the promised land, is that going to be a challenge? Yes. But in their fear, it seems insurmountable. And Joshua and Caleb are going, no way. Their help is gone, but the Lord is with us. Third, I think fear cultivates doubt in God's plan and God's purposes, right? And the people of, of Israel are saying, let's go back to Egypt. They're not believing that God can bring his purpose to fruition. And finally, fear can push us, fear and doubt can push us to a place of disobedience. When we let fear take root and we let doubt take hold, it can push us to a place of saying, I don't think God is capable. I'll do this instead. So we've talked about obstacles that we encounter on the way of obedience. We've talked about how we can recognize how fear distorts our perspective. So here's the last thing is, how do we actually find then a healthy perspective to navigate obstacles? Let me give you some things. These are some application points. Number one, I think we need to refocus our perspective. And here's what I mean by that. Take note of what causes the fear, but place it within the perspective of God's sovereignty. Now, Joshua and Caleb, they they don't paint like an unrealistic, optimistic picture. They don't say, oh yeah, there's nobody in the land. It's going to be fine. No, they recognize there's going to be a a battle. They know there's going to be a challenge, but what they say is God is present with us in the challenge. And I think, church, sometimes we need to refocus our perspective, not get so fixated on fear. We need to refocus our perspective and recognize that if God has called us to something, he will see us through. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. doesn't mean it's going to be without obstacle, but it means that we can always trust that God is sufficient. We can trust his plan. We can trust his purpose. We can trust his provision. And and, and that's part of the importance on a Sunday morning of why we worship right? We're not just singing songs as we worship. We are recounting and remembering God's faithfulness. And that is part of shifting our perspective away from the obstacles onto God's provision. Secondly, I think at times we need to recast the vision. What has God called you to? Why does it matter? Right? And maybe God has called you to be a transformative presence in the middle of a dysfunctional family. And that sounds great at first, but then you get into the challenges of hard family dynamics and difficult family relationships and and old brokenness from your childhood that comes back. And you go, this feels too overwhelming. In those moments, go back to what God called you to recast that vision of why it matters that you want to see them come to know Jesus, that you want to see their lives transformed and redeemed. And y'all, that's what Joshua and Caleb do in their speech. They recast the vision. They say, we must go up and take possession of the land because God has given it to us. 
And sometimes we have to go back to a place of remembering the significance of what God has called us to. Third, we need to remember God's promises. Read through the Psalms. Look at the promises that God gives his people. Read through the story of Exodus found in the books of Exodus and Numbers and look at the promises God makes to his people. And and maybe it's even you write down a couple of those promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that just becomes something that you pray every day. Lord, I'm stepping into a difficult situation at work. I believe you've called me to have spiritual impact here, but it's hard and I wanna give up, but I trust that you will never leave me or forsake me. And that's a way we can reroute our perspective in the promises of God. Third, I think we need to refuse to believe the lie that God's ways are more difficult than rebellion. This is what Israel's wrestling with. The promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, it's plentiful, it's bountiful, is right in front of them. And yet when they hit the obstacle, they go, ah, I think Egypt would be easier. But in Egypt, they were in slave labor. That, that's not easier. That is a lie that fear has distorted their perspective on. And church, I think sometimes when God calls us to something and we hit obstacles and challenges, we go, ah, I think it'd be easier if I just did my own thing. God, I see what you've called me to. Hard pass. Instead, I'm going to do my own five-year plan. And, and church, I think it's a lie to believe that our way is better than God's direction and purpose for us. Next, I think we need to respond in worship and gratitude. We didn't get there today, but in Numbers chapter 15, verse one, let me read this for you. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, after you enter the land I'm giving you as a home and you present to the Lord food offerings from the herd of the flock as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, whether burnt offerings or sacrifices for special vows or free will offerings or festivals, then the, the person who brings an offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering. The first thing that God tells the people of Israel to do when they enter the promised land, he says the first thing that you should do is worship. Because church, when we worship, we are remembering and responding to God's redemptive and saving work in our lives. And it has a way of refocusing our perspective. Finally, we need to pray for difficult people, right? That's one of the challenges. One of the obstacles that we mentioned is that we often encounter difficult people. You heard me say in uh, Numbers chapter 14, verse 10, it says, but the whole Israelite assembly talked about stoning them. That's right after Joshua and Caleb's speech, right? They give this rousing speech. Let's go up. Let's take possession of the land. The people respond by going, y'all, should we kill him? I think we should kill him. Let's kill him. <laughs> That's not the response they were hoping for. And if you've ever been in a situation where you're leading difficult people, sometimes it's like, man, I'm just banging my head up against the wall. I've tried every strategy that I know. I've tried the sit down conversation. I don't know what to do. Y'all listen to Moses in chapter 14, verse 17. Moses says this. He says, now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you've declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of parents to the third and fourth generation. Listen to this. This is Moses praying for these difficult people. He says, in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt till now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. It is convicting and challenging that when Moses encounters difficult people, he intercedes in prayer for them. And I think sometimes church, we spend a lot of time going, how can I approach this conversation with a difficult person to make them hear me? 
And maybe what we need to do is have a conversation with the Father about the heart of that person saying, Lord, may they know your grace and may, know, may they know your forgiveness and may they know your love for them. So as you encounter those difficult people who can be a significant obstacle, pray for them. Two other thoughts in closing. A caution for you. Be careful who your counselors are. When you encounter difficult moments, it's this question of, are you listening to the Joshua and Caleb's who are rooted in God's purpose, promise, and provision and protection, or are you listening to the other people who have let fear distort their perspective? Who are your counselors? And finally, it's this. Obstacles on the pathway of obedience are part of the process of deeper faith formation. What we see as an obstacle and a challenge, what we see as something to resent, I think God wants to lead us through so that we can be formed and shaped more and more in his image and likeness. So as we respond this morning, we're going to sing a song called Promises. And I think it captures this uh, really well. And Kyle's going to lead us into this. But let this be a moment of responding to God in worship for his faithfulness.